Our first uh, scripture today comes from Genesis 3. I'll be reading verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he take out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Our next scripture reading comes from Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through, Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And our sermon text is from the Song of Songs. Here's chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the cities and the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found not. The watchmen found me as they went into the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him who my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the fields, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And also from Song of Solomon, this is chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So today we are concluding our study of the Song of Songs. Uh, I hope that you have found this uh, study as enlightening and as edifying as I have uh, for putting it together. Um, this is a sermon series that I've actually wanted to do for a long time, and I really wanted to, to do it uh, after Easter in the springtime because so many of the themes relate to renewal and resurrection. 
And so it was uh, really fortuitous that a few weeks ago, it was actually Annabeth who uh, asked this question. So if you really like this series, you can thank Annabeth. Uh, or me. If you don't like the series, then blame Annabeth, not me. Uh, it's her fault. Uh, and you can come up with another suggestion, okay? Um, now, there is no doubt uh, that the Song of Songs is a weird book. It's just very different from our thinking and our sensibilities. Uh, understanding it requires work. However, I, I think that you'll find that, that stretching us and causing us to think in a different direction can be very helpful. Part of the purpose of Sunday, part of the purpose that we come here and worship for is to break out of our weekly, daily routines of work and school and focus on a bigger picture. And, you know, poetry is one of those ways that we can accomplish this. Uh, Typically, after the prelude to the service, we open with a call to worship, and usually it's from a psalm. And the reason we do this is to mark the time off as holy time and redirect our thoughts from this world to the thoughts of the divine. So poetry with its its soaring rhetoric and its powerful images helps us do that. It opens our imagination to possibilities and thoughts we would not normally conceive of. Now, what I've hoped Uh, that you have seen in this series is that imagination is aided by works like the songs can be an important spiritual practice. These images and these words can capture our minds and emotions in a way that doctrinal bullet points don't. They can captivate us with a vision of a bigger and better world that we might not see if we were exposed, if we are not exposed to meditate on works like the Psalms. So, Thinking back, though, uh, what we've seen as we've worked through the song is uh, that it, it looks back at the story of the garden and imagines, reimagines a world in which Eden is restored, a world where the relationship between humanity and, for instance, our vocation has been restored, and what that world looks like to the imagination of the poet. Uh, We have also seen a world where the relationship between uh, man and woman has been restored and which humanity and the land have been restored. However, for us, the neat thing about the songs is it doesn't end there. This isn't just a looking back and just thinking like how cool the world once was. You see, uh, for us, it's an anticipation of the way forward because of Christ's victory on the cross, because Christ's victory brings new creation And what we read in the song is a picture then, not of looking back, but a looking forward of what new creation might look like. Therefore, us meditating on the song and having it uh, capture our imagination can provide a direction, a blueprint, a signpost to help us enact this new creation in our own lives, in our families, in our communities, and in our place. So today we're going to look at the final relationship that was severed at the fall in Genesis 3. That, of course, is the relationship between humanity and God. Now, if we go back to the garden story, we see that humanity occupied a very important place in God's creation. God had created a world that he evaluated and deemed good. The pinnacle of God's creation was humanity, and they were placed in the garden to serve and to guard it. Humanity was to act as God's representative and given power to administer the garden. Now, 
Uh, this should become commonplace to us now, but I don't mind repeating it because it's so key to thinking through so much of Scripture. But we know how this story ends. It ends in tragedy for humanity. However, probably the most tragic part of all is the alienation of the couple from God. The Genesis story uh, has this picture of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, The Hebrew word uh, that's used for walking here uses a particular verb form called the hithpael. And that indicates a uh, habitual or repeated action. In other words, we find God, the very presence of God alongside the man and the woman, uh, recurring and commonplace. It was routine for him to walk in the garden alongside the man and the woman. This was the ideal that was ruined when the man and the woman chose to listen to the serpent rather than God. The man and the woman instead hide from the presence of God. And we find the result of their disobedience in our first scripture reading today from Genesis 3. Their decisions show that they must be denied immortality. And so they are barred from the tree of life that is now guarded by a cherubim with a flaming sword. By the way, uh, cherubim are not fat babies uh, with wings that we often see. They're fearsome creatures. Think more like a sphinx or a griffin. In addition, the man and the woman are also exiled from the garden and live in the wilderness east of Eden. As the story continues, though, we find this theme of God and uh, wanting to be with his people continuing. God, God constantly longs to be with his people. The book of Exodus is the story of God freeing the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. However, that part of the story really only takes up the first third of the book. The remaining two-thirds of Exodus is about the presence of God meeting with the Hebrews at Mount Sinai. And then the details and constructions of the tabernacle, which the tabernacle was built as a holy place where God's presence can dwell alongside his people. Exodus ends with the spirit of God moving into the temple or the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filling it. The presence of God basically necessitates the whole book of Leviticus. And so, in fact, I would go so far as to say that uh, the presence of God forms the theological center of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. As uh, the Old Testament continues, we find Israel disobedient and exiled from their land, which God had given them, much like Adam and Eve in the garden. The book of Ezekiel dramatically details God's presence leaving Jerusalem and Israel. And when the exiles return from Babylon and rebuild the temple, God's presence does not return with it. However, we know that God's presence does indeed come again to his people, but this time in the form of Jesus, whose name is Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. So my point is, is that God's presence is one of those major themes in scripture. And God's presence is essentially God wanting to be with us. Uh, It's God's desire to be with his people. And what I want to show is how this theme of God's presence and his desire to be with his people is imagined in the Song of Songs. So let us turn to one of our sermon texts today from the Song of Songs. If we look at chapter 3, we have basically a short story of this woman desperately looking for her lover. She starts off in her bed, tossing and turning, and so overcome by her desire to be with him, she ventures off into the night to find him. 
Now, even in the day, this behavior would be a, quite odd, but in the ancient world, a young woman going out at night on alone would have been scandalous at best and dangerous at worst. Uh, she is found by a group of watchmen who guard the city. And notice that she asked them. She asked them a question. What does she ask? Have you seen him whom my soul loves? So let's just think about this for a minute. If you were to lose your spouse and went to the police, you probably would not file a missing person's report with this sort of description. Missing, the one whom my soul loves. It's not really the kind of information a watchman needs to help you find someone. And the other weird thing is notice that this rephrase is repeated over and over again. The one who my soul loves is found in verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. You probably heard it over and over again as I read it. You probably even made kind of a mental note of that. And if you know anything from listening to me over the last, I don't know how long have we been doing this, seven years, if you're reading the Old Testament and you hear something repeated over and over again, it's probably important. It's significant. Repetition is there. So this phrase is inserted here by design because it's important. So what's the significance of this phrase? Well, if you remember from the past few weeks, I've made the point that poetry often makes frequent use of a literary device called illusion, in which words and phrases reference other works. Often these illusions are indirect. They're echoes of another text, maybe not so blatant. Uh, since it's not explicit, it is left to the audience to draw the connection between the two works. Now, why is that done? Well, that's a good question. Now, the reason it's done is because it forces the hearer to think about one text in terms of another. Okay, so uh, here's the thing about poetry. Poetry ain't easy. Uh, it requires a deeper level of thought and engagement than standard prose writing, but that's kind of the point. And so when we have an illusion, the illusion wants to draw us into this world and, and cause us to think about uh, two ideas maybe we wouldn't connect. Go back to that uh, original um, uh, uh, example I gave you from John Donne's poetry in which uh, this uh, man talks about his love for his, uh, his uh, lover is compared to a drawing compass. I mean, how weird is that? Um, now, what this phrase, the one who my soul loves, alludes to is probably not that obvious to us, but it would have been blatantly obvious to anyone who originally heard this song. And that's because the phrase, the one who my soul loves, is an allusion to Deuteronomy 6, 5. And you know this verse. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This verse is part of what's called the Shema. The Shema is the Hebrew word for listen. And it's two verses in Deuteronomy that were recited pretty much twice a day, every day by every Jewish person going back to, we think, the Old Testament times, at least the time of Jesus. Confessing the Shema was a regular and widespread practice. If you were a Jewish child, these were probably the first words you would have learned. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and might. For us, we probably know it because Jesus tells us it's the greatest commandment. 
Uh, but the point is, what we have in this story of a woman searching for her lover is also a story of humanity desperately searching for God. Even the word used here for seek is a special Hebrew word, bekesh. Often bekesh has the meaning of to inquire, is like prophecy. It's not like, uh, it's not the normal word for finding something that's hidden, like your car keys or something. For example, the word bekesh is used in Exodus when the tent of meeting is set up outside the camp for those who wish to seek the Lord, to, to inquire from him. So it's more like uh, uh, Apple Siri than Apple's air tags, if we were to use a modern analogy. Mason, you with me there? All right, nice. Now, this whole idea of equating the love of this couple for one another, especially with this passionate desire that we uh, see coming forth, with the love of God and his people totally weirds us out. It's kind of shocking. We like to see that the love between the couple and the love between God is two separate types of love. Now, if you've grown up in the church... At some point, you would have probably heard this story that the Greek language has three separate words for love because Greeks are complicated and their crazy language just makes up a bunch of stuff. It has vowels. We don't need them, but, you know, Hebrew is different. But here's the story you learn in Greek, right? There's three types of love. Chris has given this speech, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. And 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 look, I'm going to kind of make fun of it. It's all true, okay? But... So, so there's three word, Greek words for love, eros, philia, and agape. And eros is, of course, is the base for our word erotic and refers to the physical romantic love. Phileo is like, uh, I think, the love between like souls, like when souls connect. And so we typically think of it as friendship, right? Like, uh, you know, you, you know uh, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. So when I think of, of deep and abiding friendship, I think of the city of Philadelphia. Not really, but... Um, agape, though, is, is, is the selfless, sacrificial love. Okay, so, so far that's good. That's absolutely true. I'm really not knocking it. But usually when we hear this story, there's this implied hierarchy where we rank these types of love and assign eros to a low level and agape to a higher spiritual level. Now, I think that it's this diminishing of the physical and elevation of the spiritual that creates so much of the problem for us. It's one of the reasons we don't know what to do with the song. It's one of the reasons Annabeth read this and was like, I need to hear a sermon series on this because I'm not sure why this is in the Bible. She didn't specifically say that to me, but I assume that that's why she asked because that's why everybody wants to know why it's in the Bible. Annabeth, if I miss, uh, miss, uh, was misinformed about that, you let me know, okay? But um, we, we think that uh, it, surely a love poem about a young couple cannot be part of the Bible. It must mean something more than that. It must be an allegory for a higher truth. And the answer is yes and also no. Uh, the song is more than love poetry in which the couple sing of their love for another That's why we've been talking about the last four weeks. But the song is also not less than that. The fact is, the song thinks we can learn a lot about the love of God and his people through the lens of romantic, physical, erotic love, mainly because the Bible is not quite as prudish as we are. So what can we learn about God's love from the love of this couple in the song? Well, I think a lot. And many of them are overlooked precisely because our mentality is so different from this song. 
So, what can we learn? First, the love of God is intimate. Part of what makes us uncomfortable with this song is how private it seems. We are kind of embarrassed, partly because we feel like we were spying on this couple. Sharing an experience should only be shared by them. And I think that's part of the point. Uh, The song wants us to experience this intimacy along with them. Because it's this loss of intimacy in all our relationships that we feel most from the fall. The naked and unashamed part of the garden story seems unbelievable to us. How can people exist in this world and be naked and unashamed? Guess what? It was the same way in the ancient world. They were probably even more weirded out by this than we are. It is this intimacy in our relationship that we so desperately miss. And that feeling that we can be ourselves completely around others and God is just weird. It would be weird to be naked and unashamed. But through this experience of this couple, we get a glimpse of what that would look like. And it's equally beautiful and uncomfortable for us. God's love for his people is also intimate. God often pictures himself as a husband to his people. In fact, this picture of God, this motif is found way more often in this idea of like God as a warrior. The New Testament famously calls Christ, uh, the, uh, famously calls church, the church the bride of Christ. In other words, the intimacy that a couple shares in marriage is exactly the intimacy God, the intimacy God longs for between himself and his people. Second, like the love of a, the woman and the man, the love of God is personal. The lovers of this song know each other on a very personal level. This isn't just somebody who loves a woman, but this is someone who loves a particular woman. The fact that they can describe each other in such detail speaks to this specific love. Think about Jesus. Jesus teaches the people that not even one sparrow is forgotten by God. And certainly we are more valuable than sparrows. In fact, God knows the number of hairs on our head. Third, The relationship between the man and the woman is progressive. They grow in their knowledge and love of one another. If you remember last week, I discussed the the various, there's three of what, or there's actually four, uh, what are called wasp poems, in which the man describes the various physical features of his lover. And one of the things that's interesting is as you go through the book, there's a progression. Uh, He learns more and more. Uh, and is able to give a more detailed and concrete description of his uh, love as the story goes on. In the same way, our relationship with God is progressive. As we gain more knowledge and experience through life, our understanding and relationship with God grows as well. Fourth, and here's where I think this gets really interesting as I was thinking through this. The love between the woman and man in this story is not transactional. Okay, what do I mean by that? That's about the best description I had. I wish I could come up with something more poetic, but it's not transactional. Yeah, right. Oh, geez. Those words don't exist in this poem. All right. Get your Greek and go home. Both which, both of these, this couple wish to please each other, but not for a material benefit. There's no legal contract or concern for what benefit each would derive from the other. This is not about a political environment uh, alliance. It's not about having children. The couple are simply in love, and that's enough. It's love in a pure form that is not beholden to material interest. 
It is not utilitarian. And that is why the love between this man and the woman is best expressed in song. Here's the thing about God. And I think it's an important point we miss. And so I want to hammer it home a little bit. God does not need us. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our prayers. He doesn't need our works. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need anything about us. So why are we here? Because God wants us to be here. Just wants us to be here. That is why he created us. He needs nothing for us. He just simply wants to be with us. And I think that leads to this next point, the fifth point here. While love is not transactional, it is generative. The lovers wish to be together. And so they work vineyards together. They compose poems from each other. At one point, the man even builds a fancy wedding chair. In the same way, God delights in providing his beautiful creation for humanity. God enjoys uh, giving us the trees and garden, knowing that they are pleasant for our sight and good for eating. I was so excited. I went backpacking this weekend and I found these uh, two species of trillium, which are these beautiful flowers. I showed several of you today pictures of it because I was so excited about this. I have no idea what the point of a trillium is. Uh, sure, I'm sure it, it occupies some kind of niche in our ecosystem, but they just seem to be random flowers out there, but they're gorgeous and beautiful. And I love the fact that God put them there just for me to take pictures of and to show off at church. How cool is that? Generative creation in all its abundance and glory demonstrates God's love for us and its very creativity. Six, I think precisely because this love is not transactional and it's not generative, it's joyful. See, we often think that our love for God should be about being grateful about what he does for us. And there's truth to that. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should be. It's part of our relationship with God, just because it's part of our human relationships. I'm grateful when my wife does nice things for me. I'm glad when she lets me go backpacking for the weekend or something like that. But that is not the only part of our relationship. This is a component of, uh, of this love of, of the song as well, this joy. There's a joyful love that arises spontaneously out of sheer experience of the other person. All of these are types of love God wants us to know that he has for us and that we can have for him. The song wants us to see that love in all its beauty and wonder and the best way it knows to relate that love to us is the romantic love of this couple. We can know all we can about God. We can study doctrine. We can study theology. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But we know that understanding and experiencing love is different. Those of us who are in a marriage or have been in love know what this is like. And we, 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 we totally understand this difference. Let me tell you sometimes how we approach our relationship with God. Because we miss this understanding of God the way the Song of Songs thinks about it. See, we often think about Christianity as simply a philosophy. It's a system of thought. And one day we sit down and we go, I wonder if I want to adopt this system of thought. I wonder if I want to uh, uh, become a Christian and adopt this theology. And so, you know, maybe we, uh, we compare it to other philosophies and we decide, you know what? Christianity, 
That's the one for me. This works. It's superior to all the other philosophies. And so now we're going to adopt Christianity. Now, the thing about that is, that is exactly not the way our relationships work with the person we fell in love with. At no time did we sit down and list a series of pros and cons to try to determine if the relationship on the whole was beneficial to us. Uh, that's not the way we approached it, right? Hopefully. No, we experienced that person and thought that even though our knowledge of that person was not exhaustive and we had only encountered them for a little bit and we had no, knew very little about them, that what we encountered was so incredibly special that our life is incomplete without that person. And from now on, we wanted to engage in discovering the mystery of that person and connect with that person for the rest of our lives. That's how we fell in love. And that is the kind of love we find in the songs. And make no mistake about it, it's beautiful and powerful. Listen to the conclusion the song makes in uh, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. I love these verses. They're so gorgeous. This is why we need poetry. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither floods drown it. If a man was offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. This love, the very type of love that is celebrated in this song, is an incredibly powerful force. In fact, the passage calls it the flame of the Lord. Now, the, the word here uh, that's used for Lord is actually Yahweh. God's very own name so closely is love identified with God. And Paul too. Paul knows the power of this love because he has seen it in his experience with Jesus Christ. In fact, according to verse uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 5, it's poured out into our hearts because of what Christ has done. The writer of the song is proven right. This love is stronger than death and fiercer than the grave. Nothing can stop it. And when we see that love in its purest form on the cross, a love that, like the couple in the, of this song, is intimate, personal, progressive, and according to Paul, is not transactional. Because what does it say? Jesus didn't die for a righteous person, but for a sinner. The love is generative because it leads to reconciliation. And the result of the love is what we find in verse 11 of this passage, rejoicing. See, I think that we need to understand and meditate and experience this kind of love if we are really going to understand what was achieved on the cross. It is what Paul is totally captivated by in these verses. This doesn't sound like Paul the theologian here. This does almost sound like Paul the poet. It's not dry theology. This is Paul's passion. The song has looked back and it's imagined what it would look like if God and humanity were reconciled. And the best picture that the writer of this song can come up with is this amazing poetic song of this, uh, this passionate, erotic, romantic love between this couple. And what I want us to see is that we too can glimpse this in our relationships with each other, with nature, with our work, with our spouse, in all of these ways that they can point this amazing love, which is self-sacrificing. And it is warm and comforting and friendly, but it's also passionate and intimate and personal. And in doing so, we will imagine resurrection.